0: Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Our text this morning will just be verses 1 through 3. Here's the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrines. May God, add his rich blessing, to the reading of his word, and I begin this morning with a quote that sets up my purpose in bringing this message to you this morning, and it reads as follows, the sensibilities of the Reformation can certainly seem strange to modern people. Was Europe really thrown into turmoil by debates over whether righteousness was imputed or imparted? the one a declaration that we are righteous with God, and the other simply a new power to win God's approval? Did people really fight over whether we are saved by faith alone or by faith and works combined? Was there really a time when theology mattered this much to people? Notice the tone set by the very lead question and phrase of the quotation referring to the whole matter of the debates of the Reformation era as a matter of sensibilities, as if it was just about temperament. All of it seems so strange, obviously, hundreds of years later to 21st century years. But it's that last line that really gets to the nub of the point that I want to work with this morning as we approach our text. And it's that simple, pungent, yet powerful question. Was there really ever a time when theology mattered that much to people? Rephrase it. You get the same point for our day. Does theology matter at all? Does theology matter at all? Here we are. Just days after the marking of the 506th anniversary of the Reformation. And I'm afraid that genuinely and literally is the most question pressing, uh, pressing question today before us as the church. Does theology ever matter at all? Did it really matter to people 500 years ago? that they were to debate and divide over whether righteousness was imputed or righteousness was imparted? Did it really matter so much that the church gave vigorous dispute to the question of whether a sinner was justified based upon a divine declaration or upon whether one could earn approval by God by their faith and their works? Did such questions really matter to the church once upon a time? And the answer is yes. In fact, the questions not only mattered to the point of disputation, but to the point of the shedding of blood. I am reminded this morning that Just about 500 years ago, one of the earliest leaders of the Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli, rode out to battle on his horse with his sword on his side and was slaughtered at the Battle of Capel when, as a wounded soldier, he refused, he refused to affirm the Roman Catholic faith, having converted to the faith of the Reformation. And he died on a battlefield and now fast forward to 500 years later and to the comments made on a BBC broadcast by a so-called religious scholar who said, quote, in many ways the reformation and the bitterness and division it represents reminds us of the worst aspects of our religious instincts. To a 21st century religious scholar and theologian, the worst thing about the Reformation was it teaches us that people really do divide over doctrine, and that's a bad thing. Well, we're back to our question. Does theology really matter? Was there ever a time when people cared that much that they would argue over it? And I use that as the entry point to our text because I want to affirm, not from history, but from the Word of God. Yes, there really was a time when doctrine mattered so much that the people of God were commanded to dispute over it. And we have an example of that here in our text As Paul in these opening verses sets up for the reinforcing of the call to Timothy to take the fight to false teachers and to false doctrine and to fearlessly defend the truth. You can look at these opening verses as the Apostle Paul seeking to motivate Timothy to stand and to stand firmly and to uphold the truth of Scripture. And so what I would have us think about here this morning, in these words of Paul to Timothy, is what we can take from this admonition to Paul, to us as the people of God in the church today, to make a similar stand in our day against the encroachment, not just of dangerous doctrinal error, but utter and complete doctrinal apathy and phony religiosity pushed all in the name of Jesus. And so we take for our first point this morning from our text, authoritative warrant. If we're going to stand, do we really have any warrant to stand at all in the first place? And so I point us to the opening words of verse 1 where Paul says, Paul, an apostle, Of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Let's key in on the first few phrases here. Paul, an apostle, obviously referencing himself, not by his birth name, but by his Roman name. Because we know his birth name was Saul, because the Word of God tells us that in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, when we first met Saul. And it said, Saul still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. But move forward to Acts thirteen nine, and we have Luke, referencing the very same person under a Roman name, but making the clarification, but Saul, who also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on to speak of the Apostle Paul. So, as he speaks of himself as Paul, he's using his Roman name. It's the name that he uses to identify himself in the 13 New Testament letters. And the thing that he says, which is so important, is Paul, an apostle. Paul an apostle, and we have reference to this office of the New Testament apostle all across the New Testament. We have gift passages such as Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.28, and the term goes on and on. But to get at the nub in the heart of the meaning of the term apostle, we have to go back to Jewish documents of the same era. And the rough translation of the Greek term apostle or apostolos is the Hebrew or Aramaic concept of the shaliach. And the shaliach in antiquity in Jewish circles was the authority, the legal authority to represent and speak for someone else. Whether in legal matters or any other matter. One could enlist the services of a shaliach and whatever that shaliach said was tantamount to and legally the same as if the person who sent the shaliach had spoken it. That's what makes the next phrase pop all the more because he doesn't just identify himself as Paul the Apostle. He says, Paul the Apostle of Christ Jesus Now he tells us who the representative, who is it that sends Paul? Who is it whom Paul speaks for? It's made very clear here, he speaks for Jesus Christ. And the prepositional phrase, of Christ Jesus, is absolutely significant because it points to both the origin and the mediation of Paul's apostleship. The origin of Paul's apostleship is not his own vote. It was not given to him by the church. It doesn't come from men. It comes directly from Jesus Christ. And Paul argues this point at numerous places in the New Testament, but one of them is Galatians chapter 1, when he seeks to burnish his own apostolic credentials. He says, the gospel which was preached by me, Is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor as I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, his reception of his gospel and his apostleship are one and the same thing. They came from that meeting on the Damascus Road when he was sovereignly and graciously converted to Christ. From being a blasphemer and a violent man to a subservient servant of Christ. Paul, here, as he opens up the epistle to Timothy, steps on the accelerator and immediately goes to what's of the greatest significance, and that is authority. By whom do I speak? And he makes it clear he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to enlarge upon that by saying, by the commandment of God our Savior. And that word commandment is the equivalent of pulling out all of the heavy heavy artillery. It is epitage, and it means ordinance, command, order. In other words, it bears authority. And here he digs deep into the authority by saying, it is by the commandment of God. And so he drills down into the deep and eternal and divine basis of his apostleship. And he says, this commandment to apostleship comes from God. And then he adds to it, God our Savior. Then he says, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. From the Father and the Son, I am sent as a shaliach, and I have a message. One of the things here that's incidental in his self-description, which I find entirely powerful and entirely relevant to the issue of whether we argue about doctrine, is the way he describes Jesus. As he not only describes him as the Lord Jesus Christ, But he says, which is our hope? Which is our hope? And doesn't that get to the nub of the reality of the spiritual substance of our faith? The fact that Jesus Christ is the incarnate, eternal Son of God who came here to this earth who lived a perfect life and obeyed the commandments of God exhaustively, who was strung up on a cross between thieves as one who was bearing our sin, who was crucified, buried, and then what? Rose from the dead on the third day. Hope, Christian hope. Is not a hallmark platitude. It's not a banal term used by the spiritual elites who throw around symbolic language as if we say it enough time, it will somehow have some spiritual meaning. When the Bible uses the word hope and connects it to Jesus, it's speaking about historical reality. That a dead man was placed in a tomb and three days later he was raised by his own power. And because of that he was declared to be the son of God. History, reality, truth. And I see that's entirely related to the point at hand because the reason why we fight over doctrine is because it's grounded in what's true. Because after all, as Paul himself concedes in 1 Corinthians 15, if none of this business about the resurrection happened, you might as well stay home and watch NASCAR. Because it's just a waste of time. Playing dress up and going through religious ceremonies. Stroking long beards and acting important, but doing nothing at all. See what's under the spotlight here? Authority. And it should really jump off the page at us here as the Apostle Paul addresses himself to Timothy in this way, one whom he knows quite well. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Timothy! What if Pastor George wrote you an email like that? Pastor George of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, raised up and ordained. If that's the opening words of your email, you would probably sit forward and would, what in the world is going on? Well, the answer, what in the world is going on, is the Apostle Paul has to drop a truth bomb upon Timothy. Timothy. And that truth bomb is about the fact that his calling in Ephesus is to hold his ground. Listen to it. Remain in Ephesus to instruct others not to teach false doctrine, 1.3. Fight the good fight, Timothy 1.19. Prescribe and teach these things, Timothy 4.11. Guard what has been entrusted to you, 1 Timothy 6.20. When he goes into the octagon and he stands toe-to-toe with the false teachers, with their false doctrine in Ephesus, armed with all of their veneer and air of spirituality and religiosity, Timothy comes with what? Authority. He belongs there because Christ sent him there. The warrant for action to stand and to hold our ground doctrinally is not based upon a decision made by a church court somewhere. It's not something that people decide to do because they like the rough and tumble of debate. It comes precisely because we have an authority to enthusiastically engage in duty because Jesus Christ commanded it. And the weight of our calling is grounded nothing in nothing less than Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, and Christ our Savior, who is our hope. The one who redeemed and purchased us with precious blood, who rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, sends you. Remember here the snooty bbc religious scholar so embarrassed that he's still blushing and wiping his brow at the divisiveness of what these religious people do when they have the audacity to believe in such a thing called truth. Why do we stand firm? Because we have warrant. We have warrant. The message comes from the messenger who's none less than one sent directly by Christ. Notice the second thing here, internalized identity, in verse 2. Unto Timothy, my own son of the faith. Unto Timothy, my own son of the faith. Timothy designates the person who's being addressed in this letter. We all know who Timothy is, I trust. He's introduced to us in Acts 16.1 where we're told he was a disciple in Lystra. That means he was a believer in Jesus Christ. But to be a disciple in Lystra was a pretty dangerous neighborhood to name Jesus in. It means he was a person who was already used to holding his ground in the most difficult of places and circumstances. And he did it in such a way that everybody knew it. As verse 2 goes on to say, that he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. In other words, he was well testified of. The church knew who he was. Everybody in the neighborhoods knew who Timothy was. He's a man with certified character and of unquestionable integrity. But notice here what Paul adds by way of description as he goes on to say, my true child in faith. My true child in faith. The King James has my own son. I don't think that's a very good translation. The, the term here is Genesios and the point of it is to highlight something about Timothy that he's, he's uh, authentic, that he's a true son, that he is, he is truly adopted into the family Of God by grace so it's a way of certifying Timothy's conversion that it's a valid conversion and the testimony and the fruit of that conversion that flows through his life and ministry is a certification and a reminder of the genuineness here but as Paul uh, as Paul addresses Timothy he highlights this and he not only calls him true but he says in faith Your Bibles probably have uh, the italicized, and the reason they do is because it's not in the original. You could have done that. It would be very easy to put an article in front of it. But the lack of the article suggests that Paul isn't thinking about the objectivity of the set or the sum of Christian doctrine as much as he is thinking upon the fact that Timothy owns this faith. He has a subjective... And sincere experience of faith and he believes it he's certified genuine and true this feels very personal now doesn't it verse one kind of felt objective Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and so on but now he he switches to a very warm and a very personal tone and What he says to Timothy is uh, that which would inspire, right? Because Timothy knows Paul very well. He's like a son to him in the faith. To hear those words ring in his ear as Paul prepares him for the weight of this calling which he has in in Ephesus is a way to, to lift up his spirits. We know... That Timothy was a godly man, he was a devoted man, he was a caring man. But we know that Timothy had a proneness to be just a bit timid. And that's okay. I'm Speaking recently of a student of mine who's a prison chaplain. And he said uh, the Satanists in the penitentiary where he works have a right federally to the worship which they confess. So one of his duties as a prison chaplain is to haul the Satanist Bible to the chapel where he leads Christian services so they can engage in diabolical worship. And he says every time he does that, he feels the weight of the conflicts between the kingdom. He says he gets goose shivers and pimples on his body. He has a physical response to awareness of the dark spiritual realities at play. If we had more appreciation for that, we might understand Timothy's timidity. And I think it's quite likely in our country that's where we are heading as a whole unless something changes. And so what Paul does to help Timothy engage the fight is to boost him up. To remind him of who he is to move him, to embrace his identity. And it leads us to this applicatory question this morning, people of God. What kind of person fights for truth against falsehood? What kind of person fights for truth against falsehood? And it seems to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? Because to me, the only person who fights for something is the person who has skin in the game. And so the question is for us this morning as we hear the call to make our stand and to be firm in our faith and to hold our ground is what's your identity? What's your identity? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you been bought with a price and washed in the blood? Have you exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been adopted into the family of God by faith through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? Does a true and living and real and vibrant faith live in you? Well, my prayer is that it does for all of us here, folks. It's why you're here this morning, which is to confess Christ. But there is no way to take a firm stand against evil and false doctrine and false shepherds and those who hate Jesus Christ if this isn't true about us. Paul says to Timothy what's true. He doesn't doubt. But what he does is move him to grasp hold of what's true about him. The realities which he may have to lay down his life for to defend are true. He believes them. So he moves from that to spiritual strength now as he moves on into verse Two, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have to spend long here because every one of these terms is is familiar to us, but, but they're also important to the very way in which Paul addresses Timothy here. This is such a, a pastoral approach to addressing him because he, he speaks these to him as a blessing. He says grace, and, and when you think here of grace, let's think of this as that, that gigantic umbrella term which incorporates underneath it all of the message and the substance of the gospel. This is about the the forgiveness of sins through Christ's shed blood. This is about sin's guilt being removed through the cross. This is about deliverance from sin's power. This is about the Spirit of God touching His life and renewing Him spiritually and changing Him. It's a massive concept. It's also the awareness which we all have that grace, uh, is not just unmerited. It is that. But it's the additional notion of the Reformation that it's not just unmerit, it's given to those in a positive state of demerit. It is given to those who don't deserve the least of Christ's mercies. It's given to those who failed and sinned against the whole of the commandments of God. So it's something astonishing and surprising and glorious and wonderful. And he moves from that to to mercy. And since we see these terms in sequence and mercy coming afterwards, I think in this case we can say it explains grace. It explains grace. Because the the, the nuance that we might draw out here when we're trying to pick up the the thread of difference between grace and mercy is this idea that it's about God being moved to compassion. It's about the pity of God towards us in our brokenness and in our ruinness and our sin and our failing, in our corruption, and our rebellion, in the hardness of our hearts of our sinful, ungodly lives, what is the explanation that saving grace is shed abroad in our hearts? The answer is mercy. A sovereign determination of God to show pity. If that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what does. A sovereign determination of God to show pity, finally peace and Peace is one of these wonderful terms that it's a, it's a vast concept as well. But in a sense, it's that great positive fruit of, of justification. R- remember how Paul pivots at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And he says that those who have been justified have what? Peace. It means God is reconciled to us. He's no longer at enmity with us. He is not against us. Why? Because of the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so it speaks of a a state of relations between us and God. A relationship that has now been made whole. But the wonderful idea about this term peace is it's not just vertical. Vertical. It's not just about my relationship with God. It's also horizontal. In other words, when a person has experienced the peace of God, which passes understanding, it's not just about a sense of wholeness in their relationship with God, but it begins to spill out towards others. It's a transformative grace. It's a transformative work of God. And so as I think about that in relationship to the question which is before us, How is it that we stand firm? We need to understand that this is a vital aspect of standing firm. That we be saved. That we know the grace of God, which is in Jesus Christ, that we are aware of and are conscious of. The reason why we have that is God smiled upon us and he was pitiful towards us. He showed compassion. He was merciful towards us. But that the aim of it all is a restoration and a wholeness that happens in us, in our lives, in our relationships. And so now my mission isn't to take up a hammer and smash everybody who disagrees with me. My mission now as an agent of Christ defending the truth is to bring that peace to others. The Reformed have a bad reputation and I uh, confess to adding to it from time to time of being debatable to be disagreeable. That, That shouldn't be the reason for our stand. It isn't that we're better defenders of the faith because we're more cantankerous. That, that shouldn't be how we look at it. It was once said of a, of a person I knew that who was a, a zealous defender of the truth uh, that um, it was strange to hear somebody so ferociously and doggedly and resolutely defend grace in such a manner that it seemed like they never had experience of the thing they were talking about. That's not what Timothy is called to. It's not what you and I are called to. The most powerful thing you have to turn the tide in a conversation with people about Christ and defending His truth is you. Armed with the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, you have the truth of God with you and your life, you are treating them as if you are one in whom... The Spirit of God dwells. One who rejoices in God's grace. One who marvels at God's mercy. And one who knows the peace of God. And you want others to know that too. Stand firm, people of God. Being strengthened by grace, mercy, and peace. This is very important to the aim the apostle Paul seeks to to promote here with Timothy, and finally, we have clear and compelling sense of mission in verse three. I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. There's a few things here that. Seem to jump out on us. One is the urgency. Beside the, it's a very powerful, logical slash emotional way of talking. It's about appeal. We know it's urgent because um, he moves directly from the salutation to commission. Quite commonly, Paul's pattern would take a moment to to give thanks and to pause over some good things. But the, the approach feels like Paul just needs to jump in. And so he does. He speaks of how he urged him. And at the heart of the nature of this mission is something difficult. It was to be confrontational. He says here that thou mightest charge Some. John Calvin, quoting on the force of the term, says it denotes power. For Paul wishes to arm him with power to restrain others. And so, what is Timothy's calling here? Timothy's calling is to plant the flag of Christ in the church. where it was already planted, where it should already be prevailing, but overrun as it is by savages, false teachers, and wolves, whom the Apostle Paul has already prophesied would rise up within the ranks in the midst of the church, which has happened. Paul says to Timothy You are going to exert the power of Jesus Christ ministerially, and here is your charge. You teach them not to promote strange doctrines. One of the terms that makes up this word is heteros, from which we get heterodoxy. False doctrine. You see, it is prevailing in the church right under the nose of the apostles. Every time people say, Is this the worst generation that we've ever had? I like to think, No. It might be getting there, but right under the very nose of the apostles whom had met Jesus Christ, the risen and crucified Lord, who had preached the gospel of pure grace as powerfully and decisively and persuasively as earthly men could with the assistance of the Holy Spirit within their own ministry, their own lifetime. Ravenous wolves rose up within the church. So what did Paul do when he saw that? He didn't wring his hands. He didn't retreat. He held his ground, and he called upon Timothy to hold his ground. And what he did by doing that was lay out a vision for the church. Later on, he's going to speak of in this great book of the church as being the pillar and support of the truth. To my best understanding of the architectural terms, I think it means to hold the truth high and to hold it steady. But in the midst of holding the truth high and holding the truth steady, sometimes we need to do what old Nehemiah did, and that is strap on a sword with our trowel. In the midst of building, sometimes we have to be defending and that's the vision that Paul lays before the church here as he commissions Timothy. Yes, and I know there's many things about it that are unique to the Ephesian situation. that the reality is no church can be built up in truth and on the truth unless it's casting out false doctrine and false teachers and holding its ground. And so this commission... Of Paul to Timothy is passed down through the generations to us today just a couple of concluding points for application this morning the first thing I want to say to all of us is we need to heed the call we need to heed the call and a question comes to mind as I make that affirmation what's at stake in this calling And the answer, it seems to me, is everything important. Everything important. The key questions of the Reformation were not the key questions of the Reformation because people had sensibilities in the 16th century. The key questions of the Reformation were the key questions of the Reformation because they're the key questions of life. How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? What happens to those who reject Jesus Christ? What happens to those who go to their deathbed believing in idols? How do I know that I'm on a right footing with God? Do I have to do something else in order to be saved? All of these questions are the questions of the Reformation because of the questions of life. And yet in our day, it has become increasingly the case that to even ask such questions, let alone profess answers to them, leads us to be perceived as arrogant juveniles or fundamentalist bigots. So, we're told today that religion is about mystery. Faith begins where reason ends. So, everything that we believe is about that which is entirely unknowable. And spirituality is a flexible matter of personal choice. And that message is getting through powerfully and pervasively. I continue to be shocked at how many people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s use the language of therapeutic deism to describe what they mean by their faith. They know enough to know they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But for whatever reason, they've bought into a kettle full of fool's gold. And in that pot full of fool's gold is eternal fishing trips with granddaddy in heaven. Living in mountain alpine meadows with their deceased animals. A paradise somewhere beyond this that caters to their every need and desire. And the way they get access to it is by not believing in Jesus Christ or believing in anything at all. Just by being spiritual and maybe good. People of God, our culture today is going to require you to swim against its tide. And so as we hear this call this morning to stand firm We do it knowing that the world around us wants to ignore all of this and instead have a convictionless, myopic spirituality. But we can't do that because the things which we confess and stand for are not banal spiritual realities that have no meaning or truth beyond symbols. Our faith is about that which is true. God is the eternal sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. Man has fallen when he was created good and by the very hand of God and his rebellion against God deserves justice and wrath from eternal righteous and holy God and the only way out is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so I call upon you here this morning in all humility to hear the call of the Apostle Paul to Timothy across the centuries and to know that by God's grace, you have a, a small portion to play in this as well. And as you do that, I pray that you would be made firm in that as you answer the call by standing upon the authoritative warrant, the internalized sense of identity, the spiritual strength from God, and an awareness of a compelling mission. If you do all those things by the grace of God, you'll be equipped to stand. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.